Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Question, what does it mean to be Black and Buddhist in our world today? Answer, we're going to find out. Cheryl Giles, my guest today, is a licensed clinical psychologist and the Francis Greenwood Peabody Senior Lecturer on Pastoral Care and Counseling at Harvard Divinity School. She teaches courses on spiritual care, trauma, and resilience for caregivers and compassionate care of the dying. Cheryl's also one of the editors and contributors to Black and Buddhist, what Buddhism can teach us about race, resilience, transformation, and freedom. It's the first anthology of writings by African-American Buddhists. Her personal story, They Say the People Could Fly, is powerful, moving, and inspiring. Cheryl is a core faculty member of the Buddhist Ministry Initiative and co-editor of the Arts of Contemplative Care, pioneering voices in Buddhist chaplaincy and pastoral work. And she's also on the board of directors at the Bar Center for Buddhist Studies. So let's meet and get to know Cheryl Giles. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely from Boston today. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you for the invitation. I like to always go back in time when I meet my guests and we have a conversation. Did you always have designs as you got older that you wanted to be a psychologist or how did that all happen to you? Oh, great question. I'm so glad uh, and happy to share where I come from because that's really important. Our legacy is important. I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut and was the only child of, of, of my parents, uh, my sister was born, I shouldn't say only child, but uh, 16, 19 years difference between me and my sister. I never thought I wanted to be a psychologist. I grew up wanting to be a nurse anesthetist. And maybe as I think about it now, that came from a connection uh, as a child that I remembered that my sister was, uh, was a nurse. So somehow I, I, I had this sort of helping desire as I was growing up. And that never came to pass. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. So, you know, as I went to high school and took biology and uh, struggled with that a little bit with advanced biology, I thought this is not going to work because at that period, I thought I was going to become, I I wanted to become a family medicine doctor. Uh, And so I just, I moved away from that. But I always had this interest in helping other people. And uh, actually my mentor growing up was an African-American nun who, um, actually was a mentor for me from the time I was probably in the fourth grade. And she was a guidance counselor and a psychologist. And you're you're not going to believe this, but for years, uh, I never made the connection that maybe, uh, you know, I want to be a psychologist because Dolores, Sister Dolores is a a psychologist. You know, it was not until later on, years much later, actually when I was in therapy that I started making the connection with, oh, you want to be, this is where this comes from. Uh, but I always think I had a natural, that I was born with a sort of um, a more inner life, paying attention to inner life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty introverted. Uh, I like quiet. Uh, I think there are a lot of things that cluster around that that sort of may, make me more inner focused. But what about empathy, which is really huge in terms of what you do in your career? There's, you've got to be an empathetic person to be a psychologist and a counselor. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my story is is that I, for many years, uh, I think that probably the, the major thing in my life that's sort of front and center, you know, what we would say is the elephant in the room is, mm. that, my, is that my mother struggled with depression and also was hospitalized uh, during several times during the course of my childhood. 
And of course, you know, in a lot of families, uh, it's still, this is true, still true today, that that's one of the things, that's the secret. That's one of the things that people don't talk about. And certainly in my own family, uh, my immediate family and our relatives, nobody talked about the fact that my mother was hospitalized several times while I was growing up. And my awareness of how much she suffered really had an imprint, made an imprint on me in a sense that uh, I worried about her a lot. As I grew older, I worried that I would be like her because I didn't want to be. Uh, but I also worried that, uh, that she was so fragile. So uh, the kinds of things that other adolescents uh, and teens and certainly even in college students were doing, I didn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 was, I clearly understood that both of my parents worked really, really hard. My father did construction work. My mother cleaned houses. And I understood that they really, really uh, were there for me and trying to make a life for us. We owned our own house. I went to Catholic schools. And that's a whole nother story. That's another layer around the, this, this whole story that I'm beginning to, to kind of unfold. And uh, the whole question of empathy uh, and compassion, really, uh, the compassion, deep compassion, I think was foregrounded before I even became a committed Catholic and then later on uh, a committed Buddhist practitioner. But it's, it's really deeply embedded in me, uh, watching my mother suffer uh, a great deal throughout my childhood. And feeling powerless. And feeling powerless. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. So, Where'd you go to college? So I went to Boston College. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting because by that point, my father was working at Yale. He was a janitor at Yale. And of course, if you had a connection or you were working at Yale, you could, if your child could get in, then you could go. I never even thought about Yale, uh, going to Yale at all. I was recruited to go to Yale Divinity School. I, I never, I just wanted to get the hell out of New Haven. And I, th- I, th- I think, I think you could probably understand that a very intense childhood uh, from the time I was about four and a half up through, you know, with my mother struggling with her illness. And, um, you know, in the chapter, I talk more about that. What was below that depression? I talk more about this in the chapter, which we can get to later on if you, if you want. But I think, you know, empathy and, and compassion are, you know, the two things that are uh, that sort of um, foundation points or pillars, if you will, that were really a part of who, who I am. I want to pick up on what you said that in terms of we can talk about that, uh, the Catholicism and what kind of an impact it had on you then as you were growing up? Sure. Yeah. Great question. So I began going to New Haven public schools when I was a kid and my mother would walk me to school and then come pick me up. And, and there was a period where, you know, public schools around the country were just having such a hard time. And this is like the, the, the sort of uh, late 50s where just, you know, uh, sort of civil rights movement was gaining momentum and uh, I remember my mother trying to help me with my homework. And, you know, I, I wasn't really reading very much. I was coloring, you know, had us drawing a lot. And obviously, so since my sister was so much older, she would, she would say to my mother, you know, she should really be able to do this. She should, really should be do, able to do that. Why don't you try to get her into St. Martin de Porres School? Uh, and so that's what my mother did. And uh, I, I got in. And when they tested me, they could see that I was below grade. Uh, I, was, I was supposed to enter the fourth grade at that point. My reading level was behind and writing skills and that kind of thing. And my mother said, promised the principal, she said, if you take her, I promise you, she will, she will be ready for the fourth grade and you'll never have a problem with her. And so that was, that was the beginning of it. Uh, my parents themselves were not, not Catholic at all. And my father was tired of going to church. So they, they raised me without any allegiance to any denomination, except that, uh, or tradition, except that when I 
was accepted to St. Martin de Porres School. Every, it was a mandated that you had to study catechism uh, and go to ca- catechism classes. And so, uh, and you had to go to mass every Sunday. So we had religion in school. So we learned catechism questions then. And I had to go to mass every Sunday. So my mother would take me every week uh, as, when I was a little kid and just sit there with me. And, and so that was the beginning. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the incense. I fell in love with the smell of it. I fell in love with the ritual. I fell in love with the quiet. And honestly, it was one of the few places where I really felt safe as a kid, where I could just be in that space and not kind of worry that my mother was, was not feeling well, not have to worry that there was any tension between my parents. And I, I, I love going to school there. And I just uh, really just kind of, uh, it was a safe place for me. It was a refuge. It was welcoming to you and it was safe. Yeah. And I did believe it. I did believe it. You know, I was at an age where I wanted to believe that uh, something was bigger than who I am, you know, at mm-hmm. six or seven years old, uh, and guided very strongly by the nuns uh, who were very clear about what the boundaries were about X, Y, or Z. You know, I did some kid things like my mother would make me sandwiches, particularly bologna sandwiches, which I hated, still hate. And uh, all the other kids had peanut butter and jelly. I didn't start eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches until. Oh my God. In the last maybe 10, 15 years, I didn't grow up eating peanut butter and jelly. That's so funny because I remember on the couple of days that I could get lunch at the cafeteria in school, I craved peanut butter and jelly on white bread. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I cringe at the thought that, um, and after I had my family, I don't think there was a loaf of white bread in this household at all. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I eat it now. I don't eat it on white bread, but I eat it now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So you go to college and was your designs at that point to get into psychology? No, no. But let me just, if I can roll back a little bit. So after I finished those, the elementary school that I went to was a quote unquote mission school for low income African-American and Latino kids. And so we had a cluster of kids that lived in public housing and some Latinx folks and a lot of African-American folks who were some low income, but a lot number of that were well-to-do uh, middle-class black folks going to this, this, this church uh, and, this, and their, their school and their kids were in the school. So I graduated from that school. I had to take an entrance exam for high school and I went to an all-girl Catholic high school, which I, I want to talk about because I think that was such a formidable thing for me. Uh, it was a time when there was very few of us. I think there were 33 of us in the entire school out of about 900. It's run by the Ohio Dominican Sisters. I did well academically. I didn't do as well as I could. Uh, and as a student, even in elementary school, I did, I, you know, obviously my reading came up. So I was in the highest reading group. Math ugh, was not so interested in. But um, my, my, the work that I did in elementary school was mixed. I, oh, there was always this underlying current that there was something going on, my, going on at home. And I, as a kid, I could sit there and feel it. And I was supposed to be focusing on reading or math. And I was thinking, I wonder what my mother's doing. I wonder if, if my mother's okay. Uh, I wonder if my mother went to work today. Those kinds of things. So I just, and I, had a, I, I developed this kind of nervous stomach that I had for years and years and years, where I just, you know, the anxiety rested in my stomach. Um, and that became the home and in my throat. And those, those became the two places that, that end up throughout the course of my life have spoke to me in different ways in terms of the kind of illnesses uh, that have come up for me and the kind of challenges around speaking in public, being more introverted, et cetera, et cetera. The last year I applied to Simmons, Boston College, Providence College, and I can't remember where else. 
I got into Boston College and got waitlisted at Simmons. And I entered Boston College uh, having decided that I was being called to be a nun. That's one of the things that happened during my last year. And I think what that was was a reflection of, 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 of the kind of impact that Dolores, Sister Dolores had on me. I wanted to be like her. Now, keep in mind, I didn't figure this out at the time. I just sort of thought, oh, yeah, this makes sense. So I entered a pre-entrance program for the Sisters of Notre Dame of Connecticut. Didn't have to sign anything, but I made a verbal commitment to show up at these retreats and read these books and have contact with a, uh, a nun who was a mentor, mentor of mine. And I did that the first year as a Boston College. And I, I entered Boston College uh, with the idea that I was going to be a, a psychology major. Here's a psychology piece. Uh, so I signed when I applied there. And I got in. And here we go with, again with BC. So BC gives me a scholarship. And they say, this is all we can get. We, this is all we can give you. And I know my parents don't have any money. So I get on the, a bus myself. And I go to the financial aid office and I say, I don't, we, uh, you gave me, I don't know what it was, but the, the tuition was, tuition room and board was $4,200 a year. I said, we, you gave me a scholarship for 2000 for two thousand or 2500 I said, um, I, have to, I have to figure out how to get the other $2,000. I said, my parents don't have it. I came here to talk to you about this. Is there a way that you could give me a job and I could work off the $2,000 each year? And they said, oh, no, no, you can't do that. Uh, that's a lot of work. I don't know what the, the wage was, like $6, uh, uh, three, three, uh, three or $4 an hour or something like that. They said, just go to this, just go to this other program. They're recruiting students, African-American students. This is in the age of affirmative action who are, come from low-income family, but who have um, high potential. So I went and had an interview with these people, same people, people the same day, and I got a full scholarship with them. And so that, that's how I ended up at BC. I didn't become a psychology major because there was long, hundreds of people being a psychology major. I'm really interested in theology and religion. So I'm going to be a, uh, a theology major. So I became a theology and philosophy, did a double major in that. And so that's how I landed there. Uh, and with the plan that I was going to go do doctoral work in psychology, that I'd get to it at some point. Not for nothing, your very personal story of they say that the people could fly that you wrote for this anthology. Yes, yes. Is so based on a your home life, clearly, and what it meant to be black and female when you were and what you had to struggle with at home that you've intimated here. That very personal story just speaks volumes about yeah, who you yeah, are and yeah. what you have lived through and what you've done. Because I think it's Wordsworth, and I use this phrase a lot, who said the child is the father of the man. Mm -hmm. And that sounds to me like something that you lived through mm -hmm. uh, growing up, watching the relationships in your family. Mm -hmm. So why don't you take us in that direction? Because clearly that had such a, an incredible impact on you then, now, who you are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, there's some subtleties that show up. I am my father's daughter in the sense that he was very quiet, more with uh, restrained and maybe even withholding, a psychologist might say. And my mother, on the other hand, would have periods of really sort of uh, just being totally out of control and upset and couldn't sort of figure out what, what, what triggers for her. And so uh, the people can fly, the people that can fly came to me. I mean, I, I love folk, folklore, folk tales. It's part of the African-American oral tradition, really important. It's lost in a, in, in, in a way. So there've been, recently there've been more books uh, on this. Henry Louis Gates, uh, who does a series on tel uh, TV, also just did an annotated uh, book on uh, folk, folk tales. But I heard this folk tale at a retirement party for a dear friend of mine. And I thought this 
is fabulous. This is so much part of me. Uh, this notion of flying, this notion of, in some ways, feeling lost in the sea of an ocean. So the story goes on, you know, as you start to read more of, of, of the folktale, it talks about people flying back and the, the kind of tools and things that help them fly. Uh, and that piece of it was both of my parents kind of coming together uh, and saying, no matter what you do, you got to finish school. My father would say this over and over again. He said, I don't care what you do. He said, you know, don't, don't get pregnant. Don't, if you get pregnant, I'm going to kill you. Those were just really such angry words about, oh, somebody's going to kill somebody. Uh, I mean, I didn't grow up with that in my family, but, you know, he had just, there was so much anger around that. This whole notion of not getting pregnant and that that was like the worst thing you could possibly do. And now I, I, you know, at the age that I am now, I understand that that had to do really with about my mother's own story and what happened to her. But the whole idea of education, education, education was just pounded into me. And uh, I saw the sacrifices that my parents made. We owned our own house, but, you know, my father was like really not about extra things, you know. So we didn't have, TVs were really cheap back then. It didn't matter how cheap they were. We didn't have a TV in every room. We had one TV and uh, he, he got his check. And my mother went to the bank, literally, the next day, paid the mortgage, paid the bills, and the money went into the bank, money into the bank, into the bank. And to pay my tuition, I remember my tuition, my tuition was like $350 or $365 or something like that. And so and my mother did housework. She might make $15 for cleaning somebody's house, you know, for five or six hours. And with that money, she would, you know, give me $10 an envelope or $15 an envelope. Now, these are simple people, you know, simple meaning basic, meaning just sort of really working class people. Put the $10 an envelope and I would take, you know, it might have been a little bit more than that. And I would take it to school every week to pay that 365 by the end of the year was paid right even during the summer and then we start all over again but this idea of yes you can fly you can make it these are the ways that we're going to do it and it's going to mean that we're going to have to sacrifice some some kinds of things so things like clothes and extra things while they could afford it afford it they never they never did so we didn't my father was really a proud man he was the only sibling he had three or four brothers. They all were involved in trucking companies, all well-known in uh, New Haven. So my, home, my own family story around my mother was pretty much a secret that people in the family knew, but we, they, you were, could not talk about it outside of the house. Because she was abused. She was abused early on as an adolescent. But uh, the fact that she was hospitalized for depression, which now we would probably call PTSD, uh, was not spoken about because my father's brothers had, had such um, high self-regard for themselves that they they didn't want to want their business business that they had going they owned trucking companies yeah uh, this would be quite the blemish quite the blemish so uh and they were involved with the um elks club and all this stuff that they you know they consider themselves the black elite all of this had this massive impact on you and i don't mean to kind of jump around but that's what a conversation is to hear from you the importance of religion in your life whether it be Pentecostal or Catholic, and now Buddhism. It's a really interesting trajectory, don't you think? I mean, what is it that you were looking for that you weren't getting until this marriage came of, of Buddhism? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, and, and this is something I haven't spoken about a lot, actually, just once I m- mentioned it in passing. But, but all those, you know, I don't have to get into all these experiences I told you, but the, all of those things I think became a kind of groundswell for me. So by the time I graduated from Boston College with um, a major in uh, theology and philosophy, I wanted to take a year off to do Jesuit volunteer corps. 
And my advisor at the time, Fame Perkins, who was a professor in New Testament, she got a PhD at Harvard. Uh, and she said, oh, no, no, Cheryl, you can't do this. You have to go right, right, right to ma- get a master's right away. And so I followed her direction and did that. And while I was there studying, uh, Harvard Divinity School was very, very Christian at the time. And so I arrived at a place after being sort of just, uh, you know, sort of ensconced in all this Catholicism for elementary school and high school and college, right? So I went to college. Uh, when I was in college, I went to mass every single night. Well, Boston uh, College is a Catholic yeah, school. Exactly. But there were a group of us that went to mass every evening with the same priest that we liked. And we would use it as a kind of a, uh, in a way that you use a meditation, kind of quiet, quieting you down, a kind of a reflection time. Uh, but by the time I, I, I got to Harvard, I was overwhelmed by students that wanted to be Protestant ministers. And that whole period, I started to look at the Catholic Church. There was some interest from women. Okay, we're in the mid, this is, this is 1976. Uh, Carter, K, Carter Haywood, I don't know if you know her, was uh, one of the first women that was ordained in the Episcopal tree, priesthood. And this was in Philadelphia when this happened. She and a few other people were ordained. And this was like an explosion. And, we, and people started to think, well, maybe this will happen in the Catholic Church. So I was with that group that uh, part of the Women's Ordination Conference, thinking that we were going to be ordained because I wanted to be ordained into the Catholic priesthood. Nice try. Yeah, nice try. I was very hopeful for many years. I have no, you know, I let that go. Part of it was because I didn't think it was going to happen. But what overtook me in the meantime was really taking a closer look at the theology. I had a chance to do that when I was at Harvard Divinity School. And things like, you know, a deeper dive at looking at some of the church laws, I realized they all were man-made. These were human-created laws. They weren't laws that, that were divine laws in any sense. Also, having read your very personal story, what comes out and what we haven't talked about with with all these challenges, there's also the fact that you determined or discovered that you're gay. And where did that, how did that play into all of this? Oh, we go back to the silence era again. Well, sure. This is, are you familiar with the Hebrew word Shonda? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which means uh, basically, (laughs) oh, my God, you know, and here you are a practicing Catholic, whatever, in a household where your dad threatened you if you're going to get pregnant. I mean, you know, hello, you know, uh, being gay has got to be way up there on the do not do list. Yeah, I never told them. So they died without knowing, although I think my sister and brother-in-law knew in some way, but it was a thing that nobody ever talked about. My brother-in-law would occasionally say, oh, you know you know, you're really weird. You're weird. Or you're funny, you know, or, and I, but I, as a kid, I had this sense that I was different. I could feel it. And it wasn't just about my mother. It was in, in myself that I could feel. I was too emotionally disconnected from my body. I was conflicted. I had some very close friends. We talked to each other, uh, you know, as girls do on the phone at night after school is over. Often after the end of the school, the boys would be surrounded uh, the same areas because it was downtown New Haven near Yale. And all these girls who I was really close to uh, they would say, oh, hi, hi, hi. And then they would dash off to be with their boyfriends. And I can remember feeling angry about that. Uh, but I don't know that I was really in touch with um, any kind of sexual feelings. Uh, I, I just, this whole thing about my mother, just, I, I just. You mean um, the abuse thing about you from your mother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how Would she, you tell us who she was abused by? I don't even know. I, it was a friend of a family friend, somebody ah, my okay, grandmother. Okay. I, I mm-hmm. don't even know. Mm-hmm. And tell you, tell you the truth, there was so, shame for, so much shame for me about it. Right. Uh, I, I never even, my sister now has Alzheimer's. At one point, I struggled with whether, whether I was going to ask her about who her father was. 
uh, I never asked her. Obviously, I, I won't know now. But the abuse because your mother wound up pregnant with your older yes, sister. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So my yeah. sister knows who her father is, but I have no idea who he is. Mm-hmm. So it was something that I, I, I felt that there was such, so, so, much, uh, so much of a burden, so much, uh, there's kind of a heaviness, almost like a pall over my little, small, immediate family. And I thought, I, I just can't. And my own shame, too, about saying, 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 telling them this. I didn't want to hurt them. And I think I had a sense of sort of internalized shame that, oh, yeah, this is, there's something wrong with this. This is back in the day, and I don't know how much progress is made in terms of religion. Again, <laughs> acknowledging one's homosexuality is still <laughs> a yeah. blight. It's horrible. Yeah. Well, yeah. I remember interviewing a wonderful woman who is transgender and when she she's African-American and when she was growing up and, you know, playing with dolls and dress mm-hmm. up and her father just being just so outraged that he went out and he bought a belt that had raised stones. Oh my in goodness. Belt, and he <clears throat> beat her with that belt to beat the gay out of her. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. is there a more horrible thing than to oh. find out that either that your child is gay or your child is transgender? And aside from the fact that what's drummed into you religiously, you know, yeah, absolutely. it's sort of that, you know, cannons to the right of me and cannons yeah. to oh. the left of me. Yeah. You know? yeah. I didn't come out until I was like 20, Sandy. I mean, it's just, uh, it just. Well, okay. That doesn't you know, surprise me yeah. I mean, based all through on the college, times. You know, yeah. all through college, I, I just was not, you know, Trying on, trying on anything, you know, really. I just didn't do it. And I think my senior year of college, yeah, yeah, was when I had my first experience. But it just, uh, you know, I, I, I did not look at that. I didn't think about it. I didn't write about it. I started uh, going to counseling when I, at BC because they had a counseling office at the time. But I wasn't talking about that. I was talking about how students, a lot of kids thought I was really different, really weird, part because I wasn't smoking weed and I wasn't sleeping around. Uh, and I had no interest in doing either one of those things. I was in that pre-insurance program. I still had this thing, this uh, inner thing that said, you know, you got to hold the footprint that your parents have kind of uh, made for you, which is, you know, not, especially my father, not to go in that direction where you might put yourself at risk in some way. Mm-hmm. But so you graduate from Harvard and which is obviously a big deal. Boston College is a big deal based on what you've told us in terms of your family and your past. And was it just, was it seemingly a no-brainer for you that you were going to get into counseling based on kind of what you were feeling or where you were? Well, I mean, during the time I, I, I was at Harvard Divinity School, I did the three-year degree to prepare you for ordination. But, uh, it, it, you know, I still was thinking about the convent, still going back and forth visiting these folks and it just came to the point that, you know, this, this is not going to work for me after I had that first relationship when I was 20, that there were too many things coming together that, you know, being queer and being a woman and this, I'm all these things together. And I even did something really crazy. So I took a bus from Boston to Louisville, Kentucky. It's a long way on a, a Greyhound bus mm. to do a week-long silent retreat with this African-American nun to try to make a decision about whether I was going to you know, actually really enter or not. And I, coming back from that, I still could not decide. And uh, it was decided for me uh, because I became involved with somebody who was uh, at Divinity School, another African-American woman, who was also Catholic. And that's, you know, things just kind of moved on from there. So, uh, I, I, you know, it just was with that kind of a trajectory for me. 
And um, in terms of the counseling thing, that felt, it felt like so many things in my experience clustered around helping, supporting, uh, understanding the in, inner psyche. Uh, and empathy. Empathy, yeah, compassion. It was a place that was really- Made sense. Made sense for me. Yeah. So, so what, what, what was the, the curveball was that I then started being, I was a uh, campus minister at Boston College after I finished Harvard Divinity School for 10 years. And I, you know, you know, counseled students and you know, did a little bit of everything, worship service and everything. Uh, but then I went on to do a doctorate in, at, uh, in, in clinical psychology. And I thought I was going to work with adults. And my first placement was at Simmons College. It was a horrible year. And I think for me anyway, I think I realized that I was just really pretty uptight. And the students were coming in really depressed and everything. And that was just pushing my buttons. I thought, oh, God, I'm not going to be able to do this. And then the second year, I ended up working in a, uh, this, I'm telling this for a reason, uh, working at the state hospital here. It was called Gabler Children's Hospital. And of course, once well, Governor Well was uh, mandated that all these places be shut down, they shut it down and knocked it down. But these were all kids who you, you'd read on the front page of Globe who, for example, uh, lost it and took a bat and killed another kid. And I mean, these were, these were kids that they, they, I, they diagnosed as, quote unquote, schizoph- who had schizophrenia. Uh, and they were all locked wards. So, you know, when you think about uh, like your worst, worst imagination about what it might be like in a locked ward with somebody who's totally crazy, these, these were some of those kids. Uh, and at the time when I was in this program, uh, it was called Massachusetts School of Professional Psychology. They renamed it William James. At that point, this was a very, really competitive uh, uh, internship. And so I ended up getting that one. And uh, discovered that this was a place for me rather than, and so it, for most of the time that I've worked, uh, I see myself as a clinical psychologist who really works with younger kids, but especially adolescents, love adolescents. Uh, and it, it made more sense for me. Uh, and it also, in some ways, perhaps was more triggering, was more hopeful in a sense that if, you know, I felt like if I can get in and really make a relationship with these, with these kids, uh, uh, between the ages of six and eighteen, that that would that would help, that would that would be um, a place that might uh, help them flourish, right? So, and and I like a good foundation, good and, foundation, yeah, that yeah, they yeah. could take off from there. Absolutely, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. the research says that if you have one mentor, at least one or two people that really care about you, yeah, uh, and they stay in there, which I had, powerful, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, how did Buddhism enter your life? I mean, you who, you know, the only thing you haven't said is that you haven't experienced Judaism. I mean, well, know. that's a whole nother story because I'm, I'm actually married to a woman who's Jewish. Ah, well, there you go. <laughs> so, you know, I had kind of falling out with Catholicism and I was searching. And, and, you know, throughout this whole thing, my mother had type 2 diabetes. It was not doing well, was not following her care plan in terms of taking her medication, then later on taking her insulin. And things were kind of falling apart. And my father, you know, they they were pretty old when they had me. They were in their early 40s, you know. That's old for 1954 to be having a, another baby. I was an oops baby, really. My mother died in 1990, and I was just devastated. I was devastated. I thought my world had totally fallen apart. I just, I have never felt this kind of pain before. And as I, I used to tell people, I felt like somebody was stabbing me throughout my whole body. Every part of me constricted. Friends of mine said, well, you know, you're in rough shape. You should, you should go on retreat. Go to Barry Center uh, in, out in, out in Barry, Mass. 
And I said, oh, okay, I, I will. But, you know, really, they, they, they were very loving and tried to figure out a way to support me. This was not a good situation. I was just a total wreck. So I went on retreat, seven-day silent retreat. Uh, and I, as you can imagine, all these flood of feelings came up. Very despairing while I was on retreat. And so I just cried and cried and cried. Oh, my God. Uh, and I just, my mind was all over the place. And if you know anything about Buddhism, they call that the monkey mind. But, and that's, that usually happens. But if you're under distress or, or duress or distress, it, it's, 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 it makes it particularly hard to even concentrate on a single object. So if I was going to sit and think about a bell or a candle or something like that, uh, it was nearly impossible because I had all these thoughts racing through my mind. And I used opportunities, opportunities to distract myself. So we'd have to line up for meals. There were things on the, on the little bulletin board about the, the, the times of days, times throughout the day that I was supposed to do different things or we were supposed to sit for, or, for a Dharma talk. And I would read the same thing every day because I just was trying to put something in, you know, try, try to keep my mind focused on something other than this, this sense of despair that I was feeling. Uh, that was my interest to entrance or um, uh, connection to Buddhism at, at, at the beginning. I left there and continued to practice uh, at Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. Uh, and and that I still didn't feel any strong connection there. And then I just kind of paddled along for a long time, for a very long time, until uh, about nine, uh, 2008, I met my current teacher, who is a Tibetan Buddhist. We really got along well. And she finally later said, look, I'm I'm working with this other teacher and I'm going to start my own sangha and I, I just want to let you know. So if you, if you feel like you might want to join me and that, so I joined her. And so that's where I have been until up until, uh, and going on our retreats there and studying with her, uh, this thing called the uh, Marga program where you actually, uh, it's a teaching, teachings about uh, Tibetan teachings and that kind of thing. Very involved in there. I was involved in the board of directors for many, many years the Buddhism made sense for me in a lot of ways, getting back to look at what's going on in the interior, really trying to calm these different parts of me that got really triggered. Uh, all the literature now, all the, all the volume of, of um, books, uh, the range of books on Black Buddhism now talk about embodied practices, about the sort of intergenerational trauma that people hold. And uh, I, I finally, it finally clicked with me, which is another place that uh, the People Could Fly came up with, wow, you know, I've been carrying this for 66 years. This is, this is in my DNA. This is who, who I am. You know, I have to work. I'm going to have to really work with this stuff. I'm going to have to work really hard not to be reactive because it's there for me. And the other thing that was surprising to me is I just had so much anger. And my partner now, my wife says, you know, you were so angry when I met you. I, I have been angry, really angry for very, very many years. And it's not, it's still there. I have to scratch, really. You have to dig a deeper hole to find it, but it's still there. But I mean, I was brutally anger, angry. And, uh, you know, there's this um, image of black women as, as, as being really angry. Uh, you know, the angry black woman, that whole thing. And so I knew enough culturally that, that I wasn't supposed to be this angry black woman. Uh, and one of the things that that, uh, one of the things that I did is to try to tone that down by not speaking. So in faculty meetings at Harvard, I, when I was, I've been there for 27 years, I, I wouldn't speak. And if I did speak, I, I, I often was angry or I would say things that really would make people feel uncomfortable. Uh, and I feel like I'd get my hands slapped. And so, uh, I had a voice, had that voice clamped down. And so then I had to work, I worked in therapy to try to find a way to just sort of let, let that go, free that, let, let, you know, free myself up by finding my own voice again. Uh, and so, and I'm still in the process of doing that in, in many ways. 
Is Black and Buddhist ubiquitous? No. I mean, we have always been here, like many Black people, that the world is more uh, aware of our visibility now. They're seeing that we're there. And for me, the Buddhist practice really works. No, I understand that. But, you know, how this spoke to you and, quote, worked for you being Black and being a practicing Buddhist. So this anthology and all the contributions are written by Black men and women. And yes. it's, it's a great, no pun intended, Bible for people. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, in your time as finding yourself through Buddhism, have you noticed that this has spoken to many more people of color? Because the numbers of people, we've had certain meetings, like last year, last year, two years ago, we were in San Francisco and had a, a, a meeting of 90 Black Buddhist teachers and practitioners. And the, all of these people from all over the country, everywhere, and they have their own groups of people uh, that they're working with. We, mo- lot, some people, some of us come from, come to Buddhism from the kind of um, suffering or experiences that we've had. But I think that the one thing that connects us is uh, our experience of uh, not just intergenerational trauma, but also trauma, the trauma of racism, the trauma of systemic racism, the trauma trauma of white supremacy. Mm. Uh, And, you know, years and years and years, we're working on this 400 years saying, oh, this is, uh, you know, this is inequality. Uh, This is an inequity, healthcare inequity, housing, uh, you know, inequity, food inequity, all these different things. And when you add the whole race period, race thing into it, we have never, ever, ever been without white supremacy. Do you feel hopeful based on, uh, you know, a new administration and a vice president who we all know, Kamala Harris, black, of Asian descent, female. Do you think we've turned a corner? I don't think we've turned a corner. I think we're still on the same page. What I do think is that we have people in Congress and the government that have made a commitment to work on this. But I do think that one of the most hopeful things is that I think that Black people recognize we're in a movement. This is not a moment. Mm, yeah. This is not a moment. And, you know, I just keep thinking about what, what, what John Lewis said. Do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful. Be optimistic. Our struggle is, a struggle, is not the struggle of a day, a week, or a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. And that's for you, John. In this world we live in, offering hope and solace and comfort and another path, right? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so Mm -hmm. much for for this conversation today. It was a pleasure. Oh, that's terrific. I really enjoyed meeting you. Take care, Sandy. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Mm -hmm.